So the biggest thing I can say in terms of managing the aftermath is stop thinking so much that something's wrong with you. Let it go. What if nothing's wrong with you? Hello and welcome back to the Empath and the Narcissist podcast, as well as the Raven Scott show on YouTube. I'm so excited to share with you Nikki Eisenhower today. Before we dive in, I'm going to share a bit about her with you. She is a professional psychotherapist, international life coach, yoga teacher, and host of her very own podcast called Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. In 2017, she launched the podcast to spread healing, empowerment, and hope to highly sensitive people, empaths, survivors, and seekers all over the world. Drawing from her personal experiences as a survivor of childhood abuse and the years that she spent as a psychotherapist and life coach, she's mindfully designed the show to be the emotional education so many of us crave. She truly believes in the power of healing. When we heal our wounds, let go of what doesn't serve us anymore and embrace transformational self-care, we are able to live a life of purpose, peace, and connection. As we each step up to do this healing work through the butterfly effect, we change the world. That's so beautiful, Nikki. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. And we always need more work on this message of how to manage the narcissists that are out there and how attracted they are to us makes it tricky. Yes. Yes. And you started your podcast right about after this great awakening of what a narcissist is. It seems like there had to be someone front and center in our nation for us to really open our eyes to see, wow, what the effects are. This was definitely my specialty before politics kind of went to cuckoo land. That, that's <laughs> for sure. And I, I, I've wanted to do a podcast because I make the joke that I've had more therapy than anyone in the world. <laughs> and it was still very, very difficult for me to realize that I was surrounded by narcissists growing up. Um, and I, I think that's a real failing of my mental health profession that we focus so much on the individual sometimes that we don't realize if the individual is surrounded by people that gaslight, manipulate, and basically intend to make us feel crazy, we're going to feel crazed. And when we try to figure that out from the place of what's wrong with me instead of what environment am I in, what reactions am I having to being manipulated? Wow, is it a mess? So I, I spent so much time in, in my youth and development, even while paying for therapy, not understanding what was going on around me, not understanding what was happening to my highly sensitive system being around super dysfunctional people. And we don't have to figure out who's a narcissist in our life or not. I, I am of the belief that we so devalue healing and growth and self-development in this country of ours. And we haven't valued really teaching people about emotional intelligence, despite really knowing the basics of what makes for good mental health kind of since the fifties and sixties. And we just haven't incorporated that into how we relate to each other, how we teach and grow our children. And so all of us are sort of fumbling around in the dark, trying to make sense of things that aren't really that complicated, but when you're fumbling around in the dark, None of us know what the hell we're doing. So we're confused. We're lost. We're, 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 we're crazed. We're exhausted. 
and, and that's part of why I'm here today. And part of why I do my own shows because the more, more of us that can shine light for other people, the more grounded and healed and effective we can be in our lives for so many things instead of having our energy so wasted. Yeah, it is like a wasted, like merry-go-round. It's this toxic cycle. I want to dive in a little bit more about this unit, like the foundation of who we are as we grow up um, as young children. Our development is stunted when we are gaslighted and we're kind of in this very toxic environment. You you grow up not knowing what is normal, what is not. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that before we dive into the emotional paralysis and the aftermath of being in a relationship with a narcissist. And I, I think even the aftermath is tricky because when we're living in that environment, it's like every day we're having the aftermath of yesterday while we're being re-traumatized and reconfused and sort of re-lost in it. So it, it's such a, it's such an overwhelming process in my own story. I come from parents that had narcissism, that had sociopathy. Um, my mom married someone who had already been accused of being a pedophile with his children. Uh, so I had so much unsafety. I had so much getting used in different ways for emotional supply, my physical body, just no real semblance of safety. My biological father abandoned me. He's a narcissist. And all of these disorders are a low empathy disorder. They're a low maturity. I, I wish the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, really talked about personality, personality disorders in a very different way. Those of us who are raised under that will have symptoms of those personality disorders because we grew up in them. They were taught to us. Right. That's different than our personality fixating. Once our personality fixates on narcissism or borderline or any of the personality disorders, there's no coming back from that, in my opinion. Because of that low insight, it loops on itself. If I'm a narcissist, I'm right about everything. I have nothing to learn from anybody else. So why would I change anything about me? And that's the catch-22 of that. So for the rest of us who have some of those qualities, you know, most HSP of it, are you sure I'm not a secret narcissist? Well, we grew up under them. So we know how they think. We know how to react and respond. But if we have the insight to ask that question, if we have the desire to want to be healthy people, if we know some of the time, oh, shit, I, I messed up. That was me. We are not a narcissist, even though we might have soaked up some of those ways of being. Mm -hmm. So what a confusing thing yeah, to that's... figure out on our own. While so, we feel ashamed of our own behavior. Yeah, right. it, it's such, such but, a catch. And I think that's really important because, you know, I always feel like, oh, well, I, I really could go down two roads. Like I can really behave out of this narcissist personality. But you're right. But then I catch myself and I feel shame, like the healthy kind of shame. And I feel bad about it. And I come back a few hours later the next day and say, I'm so sorry that I said that or I did that. That was wrong, right? That's the main difference, yes, right? That's the difference. And you just said so important. You just said healthy shame. Part mm -hmm. of why we think we're growing more narcissists now is because the pendulum has swung in the, under, in the other direction. Parenting now and in the last few years, maybe decade and a half, if not two, has been about 
fully listening and being shame resilient. And so what we're seeing are, are children developing without proper appropriate shame. That's mm -hmm. a very dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. so, so what a weird thing for us to look at in terms of how we relate to people, how we feel, how we raise our children, that we really need to understand that we want our children to experience appropriate shame. When they feel bad and guilty about doing something wrong, we, we want a, a reasonable amount of that. And, and raising our children to never feel that it is really, really problematic. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to just share with you what I am offering and I'm so excited to provide. First off, you can purchase my book on Amazon, Empath and the Narcissist, A Healing Guide for People Pleasers. I am creating a course that I'm so lovingly calling Embracing Your Black Sheep. This is something that's near and dear to my heart, and so I can't wait to offer this to you to gain clarity, to heal from the narcissist and toxic abuse, as well as really tuning into yourself and adjusting your expectations, creating healthy boundaries, being able to say no, and really strengthening your own inner autonomy. These are really trying times, and it's important that us empaths are strengthened, are supported, and this is the goal of this course. So if you'd like to join the waiting list and sign up today to get the latest news on when it's being released, which I imagine should be around August, sign up in the link in the description in the show notes. The link to the book as well as my merchandise store is also in the link in the show notes. I am raising money through my merchandise to help donate, to raise awareness for common sense gun laws, to stop the heinous free willy-nilly ability to be able to purchase a gun when you're mentally unstable. This needs to end. And so my merch, all of the profits right now are going towards this cause. So go and check out my merch store. There's items for children, journals, shirts, hats, and I'm constantly adding more to be more of a vocal voice in our society for inclusion. Can't wait for you to check those out. I can't wait to hear from you. And now back to the show. is your next step to defeating the narcissist. Learn how to master your boundaries, how to release responsibility for another's emotional response, how to feel the power of your self-sovereignty, free yourself from narcissistic abuse, and draw long-lasting, powerful boundaries. Get your free How Empaths Can Draw Powerful Boundaries workshop now at ravenscott.show forward slash free dash workshop. Yeah, and I think I was just talking to a friend and she's saying, how do we fix this? How do we like stop this narcissist pattern from continuing to the next generation? And I really think it is 
key in the future generations. They can't be overly spoiled. And a lot of people hate like kids get these participation trophies. That's a very good point. But we also can't overly be harsh and authoritarian. There has to be balance and a middle road, right? Yeah. And it will never be perfect. There's no way to walk that line perfectly. And I think a lot of parents who had their own traumatic childhoods overcorrect and they felt so badly and so shameful and so empty and put upon that they overcorrect and then they create a narcissist just like their parent. Yeah. And then the and cycle I, doesn't it, end. Yeah. And then the cycle doesn't end. So healing cannot be the pendulum going to the opposite direction. We have to find balance in the middle. Because if we don't feel appropriate shame, we're a potential little sociopath or narcissist. So we want that for our children. Yeah. And, and we really need to grow parents who understand the nuance and the balance of that. Different than making someone feel ashamed about who they are right. instead of guilty about this action you committed. If you colored on the walls, you know, I, yes, guilt is appropriate. When mommy goes, oh, you're not supposed to color on the walls. This is not okay. You disrespected the house. You disrespected our rules and you know better. You know that crayons are paper and not for walls. This is not okay. We have to teach, that teaches boundaries, respect that you don't get to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Like all of that is a healthy containment. So, so where we're having this dynamic in society in lots of different ways, sort of from the top down from our parenting and older generations, their own suppression of emotion, their own inability to learn and grow. There's so much of that older generation that like that World War II and then had children that had, was so prideful about do I say, not as I do, do it my way because I'm the parent instead of really learning and growing. What most of us needed we never needed a perfect parent and we don't need to be a perfect parent if we're parenting children. What we need to be able to do is humble ourselves to be able to look at a child and go, I made a mistake. I don't like how I handled that yesterday. I'm going to do that differently as your mother, as your father, because I'm learning and growing. That's how we model for children that they have to learn and grow, that they, that uncomfortableness has a purpose those uncomfortable feelings are not feelings to avoid always. All of our feelings in the emotional wheelhouse of being a human are important. And when we think of them as bad feelings and good feelings, we discount those uncomfortable for why we feel them in the first place as human beings. We don't just feel them to feel shitty. We, right. we feel them for really good reasons that grow us, that build character. So we don't need to be scared of feeling these uncomfortable feelings. I love that. Yeah, 100%. And I always do not, I despise when I hear parents out in public say, stop that or stop crying or suck it up. They usually don't say suck it up, but you know, the extreme parent will say that, but they usually just say stop crying. And I'm always like, ah, but they need to know, like, of course, you don't want to take it beyond and say, yeah, go ahead and cry and like push the boundaries and hurt other people when you're angry. No, there is a healthy balance of I will hold space for you. It's okay to be sad and angry. Let's go outside and scooter or exercise. Get all Get that anger out, out. And then we can have a conversation about what you're really feeling, right? 
Well, and there's also knowing the difference between your child being in real emotion and manipulating with yes. that emotion. Yes, true. Because because we are innately matures because we come into the world very helpless, you know, and there's a fine line between crying, I'm hurt. You can see it in a two-year-old. A two-year-old will fake cry and look at you like, ah, come, come attend to me. You know, right. we have to be able to discern that difference of when to sort of ignore that emotion <laughs> and when to tend to it. Yeah, and when and people don't older, know the difference. They get better at manipulating. Yep. So that's why you have to start the boundaries when they're young. Yes. But yes. It's okay. If it's you've missed the boat, important. it's still okay to catch it. It is. There's always time to, to redirect and, and correct and, and adjust and fine tune. That's what we'll be doing till the very last day we're on earth. We'll be fine tuning. So, so aftermath, like that's what you wanted to yeah, talk about too, the aftermath. I think this one point is the aftermath. Like you said, this intense guilt, right? So we're swinging the pendulum from like overly coddling our children that's definitely the first point of the aftermath but what happens after like this whole emotional paralysis after let's say you've left an emotional relationship with a narcissist what are some for me my, my first husband was a very dangerous low empathy human being in my opinion and the aftermath for me was that I had absolute, I met him when I was 17 and I left him at 24. Okay. The aftermath for me was that I had absolutely no concept of who I was. I was so dependent from having my parental units be pathologically selfish, basically, which means that they can't, they can't, it's not, they don't want to, it's they can't, they don't have the program. Like, it's like trying to ask your computer to run a program that you didn't load on it. Like, it's not there. They don't have an empathy for other people or it's so not even accessible. So the aftermath of that for me was that I had learned to show up for other people. All I did was show up for other people. I had no concept of what it was to show up for myself. And I think that is a terrifying spot to be in after you grow up, recreate some family dynamics of origin, find a partner young, they kind of take all your power, kind of suck you dry. We say narcissistic supply, right? It's really like having the vamp a vampire suck all the blood out of you. I felt mm -hmm. like a puddle on the floor, just a puddle. And so it was a, it was a slow kind of slog I think to come back to myself, to start to build some worthwhileness inside of me because I felt so worthless because that that's really what a pure narcissist does. They, they suck all, your, all of your life force out. Mm -hmm. And so healing from that is a sort of permission to come back that I'm a worthwhile person. I can start acting as if, despite how I feel, because yeah. when you feel worthless, we can't let our actionability, if that's a word, come out of that worthlessness. That worthlessness is just a feeling there that we have to really push through to build into a worth. So I think in some ways I felt like a plot of land that really needed a house and maybe there were just the beginnings of a foundation. 
And I had to really build the house like bit by bit, having no idea what it was to build a house because I hadn't had parents that showed me what it was to build into a healthy adulthood. Mm -hmm. My grandparents had been sort of my functional parents. I had wound up living with them during a lot of my development, but then they died when I was 15 and 17. Mm -hmm. So I had the trauma of losing them, which really set me up. On, on grief, that, that emptiness, they were my safety nets in the world. I lost both of them before hitting adulthood. And so that, I think, on top of having my parents having never been safe, uh, of course, I walked right into the lap of a narcissist and most probably a sociopath. Yeah. Was, he was about six years older than me, so there was a power differential, and he had a small child, mm. a 15-month-old little girl. And wow. really, I fell in love with her. And mm. once I attached to her... I stayed for almost eight years. And, mm. and when I finally extracted myself, I extracted myself because it was scary. It was yeah. escalating. How, Had I not left, it would have how, been. How did you find the strength and courage? Because like you said, it's very, it's very common that self-worth is like a puddle, but there's always I, some type of mustering of something. I had, I had been raised, despite what I just said about my family system, and I'm a systems theorist, which, which means that I really look at an individual within the system that they're in. And, and the systems that we're in are like a baby mobile mm. that hangs above a baby crib. Mm. It, it's like if one little part of that baby mobile moves, if the baby's foot connects with one part of that baby mobile, all the other pieces move. They all move a little differently, mm-hmm. but they all move. You can't move one of those pieces without the other pieces being affected. Mm. And that's how a family system is. Okay. So as I as I aged up and, and left this abusive relationship, I had been taught, like I think a lot of women, especially men too, are are still taught that the line that we carry in our subconscious is if someone hits me. Mm -hmm. That was a hard line for me that I knew as a woman, if someone hits me, that is wrong. And I will not allow that. I knew that. Yeah. The problem with that is it means that I allowed so much emotional abuse that Really, I set myself up to have to wait to the point of it getting violent before I would give myself permission to leave. And that makes sense because that's a tangible thing that happens. You know, before someone hits you, it is damn near impossible to put your finger on the, the craziness that is happening because the narcissist in my life would do things like if he was upset, he'd rip the covers off of me and make me up. He wouldn't let me sleep. And as a highly sensitive person, if there's one thing that we need Mm -hmm. to feel sane and grounded is sleep. We need to be rested. I mean, the average person maybe can hustle and function out there. We are our worst selves if we don't get sleep. And so then my worst self would show up. Then I'd feel guilty because I yelled or I fought with him and that was on me. We also tend to take a lot of responsibility as highly sensitive people. If we were raised by narcissists, they didn't take any responsibility. Yeah. So we take all I have of it. A th- so we take all of it. I, I have a theory that it's like responsibilities, like a beach ball, you know, like at a stadium that kind of floats around. And if each person won't grab it at the right moment, when it's their responsibility, we just sort of automatically grab it in the same way that if I threw a ball at you right now, you would just automatically catch it because I threw it at you. So we automatically carry responsibility. So that that made me take too much responsibility for what was going on. 
And the truth is that psychologically, we often want it to be our fault. My younger self believed in a psychological sense, not a conscious sense. I understand this now. I didn't in the moment. If it's all my fault, then it, I have the power to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. kept me locked in with him for years and years and years. Yeah, you add in his idea blame. that you yep. can fix yourself and then that'll be fine. And then you sometimes when you have a moment, you think, oh, well, I could also fix him. And then that'll be fine. Too. Then everything will be fine. It's always like, if this, then always, it's like this perpetual cycle, but it never is fixed. Can't it fix never it. gets fixed because when you're in a reasonably healthy relationship, responsibility is shared. Yeah. Blame is not so much of the dynamic, but if you come from a family system where that happened, it's so normalized that you, that you can't even see it. It's as normal as the sky being blue. So we don't notice that the sky's blue. If we walked outside and the sky was maroon, we would all really notice it and go, oh shit, well, something's going on. This is not okay. We've got a warning, warning, warning. Something is, something is about to go down. Yeah. But we don't, we don't see that within these relationships. So it had to escalate. Okay. I was seeing therapists. I was, they were trying to get me to see how abusive he was, but it was so normalized to me. I really couldn't hear it in the way that they were giving it to me, or I wasn't ready. I think Mm -hmm. the combination of me not being ready and frankly, therapists not being strong enough about this is not okay. This will not get better. I think in mental health, therapists are often scared. They're scared of getting attacked by that narcissist. They're scared of being blamed. They're scared of backlash because narcissists will try to screw with our licenses when we empower someone else to leave. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a lot of fear there in our field about being, being strong for our clients and that that's a way I've intentionally tried to be different, but in my own story, it it basically escalated one night to where he would say things to me like, Oh, I'm never going to hit you because I'll never give you the proof. And he backed me into a corner in the kitchen. It was a little bitty kitchen. And he sort of put his, his weight and his size over me. I'm a pretty small person. And my, because I have a strong fighter in me that, that I often felt ashamed about as a woman. I, I grew up in the South. I'm from Louisiana. So on top of all the, the female things that we pick up in society, I also have a nice hefty layer of Southern niceness and hospitality and how women are supposed to show up. And you're not supposed to be angry and strong as a woman. And you don't necessarily get taught that directly, but you sure pick it up. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in that moment, my eyes shifted to the knife drawer and I thought if he hits me, I, I have also had some jaw surgeries that went bad. So I had the awareness that if I get hit in the face, my jaw really can't, can't take this. And my eyes just went to the knife drawer and he saw it and he went, Oh, you're going to, you're going to pull a knife on me. And it started escalating. And I, we wound up in the living room. I picked up a college textbook. I threw it at him. He said, you assaulted me. I'm calling the police. So that, that's a game that abusers will play to frighten you. He had taken my car keys. I knew this was escalating beyond that it was about to get physical. And, I, and really I left because of me. And I don't think a lot of survivors admit this when they have a strong fighter, because really society likes the story of the, woe is me. I, I was female and delicate and frightened. And no, I thought if this man hits me, I'm going to murder him mm-hmm. was the truth of it. And so that's a strong fighter part that I've had to really learn to love and honor. And I'm so glad I have her. She saved my life. 
Yeah. So many times. She did. So women out there, I've had a lot of you apologize or feel bad about that strong fighter. Don't feel bad about that fighter. We need that fighter. Men don't feel bad about their fighter. They feel empowered to have theirs. We get to feel empowered about having ours. This life takes some fighting sometimes. <laughs> we, we need that peace, in my opinion. I, I wish we did a better job of encouraging that in our girls. Yeah. So that yeah. was the fighter in me. And it, it starts at a young age, right? Like girls only play with dolls and boys do all the big physical stuff. It's like, no, I'm always, I, my girls are always like, what? Like even like a weird double standard, right? Like boys get to wear no shirt when they swim and girls have to like, what's with that? The boys should wear the shirt too. It's like, it starts with all those little insidious cultural mm -hmm. things, right? Where boys are, are different than girls. Yeah, of course they're different anatomically, but culturally girls. Well, and I, yeah, I have concerns about what's going on with gender and our young yeah. girls now too, because I didn't like playing with dolls. I'm a very feminine female, mm -hmm. but I didn't like playing with dolls. I didn't like Barbies. I liked wrestling my older cousin. And all I would get told was stop it. He's going to hurt you. He's three years bigger than you. You're going to cry. And yes, I was a highly sensitive kid, but I was high sensation seeking. That's my subtype. So Yes, I was going to cry, but that didn't mean I didn't want to do it. <laughs> it still felt good. Yeah. And that's, again, yeah. the, ne the negative aspect of crying. It's like, okay, well, that's just part of it, right? As a kid, you're right. like, yeah, instead of don't do it because you're going to cry. It's like, <laughs> I can do it and cry anyway. Thank you very much. And that's okay. So yeah. when I look back at my own childhood, I think, my God, like somebody might have really tried to convince me that I was male because I wanted to be in there with the boys. I wanted to wrestle with the boys. You know, so, so there's a lot there, but, but in that moment, I, somehow I got my keys from him and I, I did the, the stereotypical cliched leaving in the middle of the night with only the clothes on my back, you know, but it's the safest way because they're so intimidating and they can get physical. And like you say, they get very manipulative if they go after you know, therapists legally, but you know, really the malignant yep. and borderline psychopath. It is the safest way to go. And if you're supposed to go no contact with the, the narcissist anyways, <laughs> you might as well exit non-contact. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I had nothing. I had about $200 to my name. He mm. had taken all of had my credit cards and debit cards. I, mm. I did not know what I was going to do. I was terrified. I slept in my car a couple nights. Um, I had had a therapist tell me to go to a women's shelter and I don't live with a lot of regret in my life, but when I look back, I realized that my sense of pride would not let me go to a women's shelter. And I really needed the help. I made life harder on me because of that sense of pride and doing it myself. When you're emotionally neglected, you save yourself basically. And this idea that you're going to go get help, we, we won't allow ourselves to receive proper help because we don't have receiving help muscles. Right. They're atrophied. So I really didn't know how to receive help. And to someone that doesn't understand that dynamic, that sounds ludicrous. That sounds ridiculous. That sounds like you need help. You take help. Somebody's there to help you. What do you mean? It's like one plus one equals two, but that's what this kind of abuse does. It's like if one plus one equals two, some kind of way, this manipulative abuse makes one plus one equal five. Mm -hmm. And you're left to try to sort out how to explain that to other people that actually your one plus one equals five. And that makes no sense. Not even to the self. Mm -hmm. So we get so lost because of all of that. So I resisted and I didn't go to a shelter, even though I really needed to. 
I wound up staying with a friend. I wound up having to drop out of school. I wound up embarrassed walking out of jobs. I was uh, waiting tables at a restaurant and we were closing up one night and he called the restaurant drunk. They said, Nikki, you have a call. I said, that's weird. Why? We had cell phones at the time. Well, I blocked him. Hmm. And drunk, he's like, I know where you work now. I got escorted out of that restaurant running for my life. I really thought I was going to be a Dateline special. My friend's family thought I was going to be a Dateline special. Mm -hmm. Uh, Years later, I'd find out that he was telling people who knew me that I was prostituting myself, that I was shooting up heroin, none of which was true. For years, I ran into people who looked at me like they had seen a ghost. They'd go, oh my God, you look so good. And after about the third or fourth person had that reaction, I stopped and I said, why are you saying it like that? <laughs> like this, this is Bial, you look good. It was like they saw a ghost come to life. And finally, people started admitting to me from me asking, well, we thought you were prostituting yourself and, shoot, and addicted to heroin. And, and that crushed me because I thought, this is the story and no one's come to ask me. No one's come to check on me. And that's so really the heartbreaking. Why do people believe the narcissist is, when they lie and, and de- Well, they're charming. Them. And that, yeah. that is a superpower. When you haven't been forced to decode master manipulation, you don't know how to see it. It's like asking a colorblind person to see a color that they can't see. They, they can have sort of a, a hazy idea of what that color is, but they just don't see it when they look out at the landscape. And unless you have tackled manipulation in your life, it's almost like that. People can't see it. And we don't know how to not take that personally. So we're so raw at that point that that in some ways that can hurt more than the actual abuse, than the actual neglect, because we understand, okay, this person is really sick and doing this to me, but there is this outflow of my God, but everybody gets attached to this sickness. They all believe his view. It's like a weird magic that they can pull on otherwise really well-intended, good-hearted people. Yeah. So that's a big part of how we, go ahead, go ahead. No, no. It makes you feel, you start to ruminate it and you feel, well, I've lost my word now. What is it when you feel um, not abandoned, but a betrayed, you feel betrayed. Absolutely betrayed. It's the word. By the human tribe. And and that is, I think, almost the dirty secret of what we're really healing out of this dynamic. It's not just the moments that are like, duh, that was an abusive moment. Okay. It's more so the outflow, no one's seeing it. This is why, so this is a weird thing for me to say, but I think from the, the beginning of time, if any human being thought they saw an alien, the very first thing we've all done, if we thought we saw something out of the ordinary, like let's turn around and go, did you see that? Anybody else see that? That is the universal first response is, please tell me somebody else saw that and I'm not crazy. Yeah. That's reality testing in psychology. Mm-hmm. So when something wackadoo happens, we really need somebody else from the human tribe to go, yeah, I saw that too, for us to not feel crazy. Mm-hmm. So when we're having this experience of being manipulated and nobody sees it. We are left with this feeling and we don't know why of, I feel so insane because if I'm not insane, somebody else would see it. 
because it's really bad and nobody else sees it. They all fall for this weird magic that the narcissist can cast. And we feel at, we feel as crazy as seeing the alien and nobody else with us seeing it. Yeah, and that isolation is really, really painful. And yeah. we can feel that surrounded by people who are telling us we love you and we'll take care. Like we can feel that isolation and then we feel doubly crazy. What's wrong with me now? Because I have people around me. So something must be wrong with me. So the biggest thing I can say in terms of managing the aftermath is stop thinking so much that something's wrong with you. Let it go. What if nothing's wrong with you? And when someone toys with your mind, you're supposed to feel puzzled. You're supposed to feel screwed. You're supposed to feel lost. It's like, it would be the same thing as me taking you on a trail, spinning you around a bunch and then going, okay, find your way, go. You're disoriented. (laughs) Naturally, you're disoriented. And that's what these personality types do. They actually get off on disorienting stuff because you can't find your way when you're disoriented. Yeah. So we have to learn how to orient ourselves again, Yeah. to ground ourselves, to root ourselves. And we have to start from the place of what if I'm not crazy? Mm-hmm. What if a lot of this isn't me? What if this is just wrong? Yeah. In AA that they have this beautiful saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not an alcoholic, but it's one of my specialties working with people. Because if we're dealing with this, guess what we might do? Drink a lot to <laughs> numb me. out. That was me for sure. Yeah. And this is why I'm not down as an addiction specialist. I'm not down on drugs and alcohol because in a, in a way that we're uncomfortable with in society, I might not be here today if it wasn't for drugs and alcohol. And we're very uncomfortable with that idea. Hmm. If we are that abused, we may have needed that numbing agent to survive it. Is it ideal? No. Is it advisable? No. Do we need to be able to understand that about our history? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's a taboo It's because it's so integral in our history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about what if you were not the crazy one, it just brought so many beautiful like analogies and word pictures. A lot of times us empaths identify ourselves as the black sheep of the family like that's yes, a negative and like a negative connotation but my very wise husband said the other day just like you did what if you're not the black sheep what if they are all black and you're like the rainbow sheep or something like that you know it's like like you said what if you're the normal one that saw the alien and everyone around you is blind to it or is a zombie or maybe has been infiltrated by the alien you know <laughs> you're like the only one yes. with your eyes wide open yeah mm-hmm. there's a phrase for it in therapy good therapists that do emotional healing work okay mm-hmm. there are some that like help you with phobias and help you with very specific things and are very rational but those are that really help us reparent ourselves that's, mm-hmm. that's the work that i do really return to what it is to love ourselves that's what self-care is. It, it's about coming back to actually, what is it that I need to do for myself to love myself the way that if I had had healthy parents, I would have been loved, taken care of, nurtured and launched into the world. And how do I do that for myself now? Therapists that understand this family system dynamic, this sickness and the effect on the individual have a phrase called the identified patient. Often the person out of the family system who shows up in therapy, okay? is the identified patient. 
And it seems like from the outside, well, you would be the person struggling. You're the one with a mental health diagnosis and struggle, right? You're the one with a little bit of the crazy. That's what it seems like. But what we know is that the identified patient, the one who comes in, is often the healthiest person in the family system. It's, the, it's everybody else who's very comfortable in that family system going, well, you're the one who goes to therapy. You're the one with the problem. And right. that works for people who are very fixated and dedicated to the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And that are so deep down scared to self-examine that they cannot and will not admit that they could grow, they could evolve, and that they have probably failed people that they love because it's part of the human condition. No matter how healthy I am as a human being, relating to people, I will fail people that I care about. No matter how high my integrity is and no matter how high my intention is, because I am a flawed human being. And we have to learn the difference between that sort of humanity versus a pattern of failing each other, mm-hmm. having and just- moments of failing instead of the pattern is that I forsake you and I fail you and I blame you and I roll. Mm-hmm. Blame and roll. Yeah. Or they admit like, I probably have failed or we probably have failed as parents, but then that's it. Then it's like, but I'm not going to take empty. responsibility. I'm not going to change that's anything because they obviously don't have the emotional tools or have the motivation to, which also is really painful. <laughs> yes. Yes. I teach a boundaries course every October right? and people are always shocked at what I have in that course. A big part of the beginning of that course is being able to accept people as they really are, as the basis for boundaries work. So many of us as highly sensitive people, I call it dysfunctional hope because hmm. we never talk about hope that way, right? Hope is yeah. always lovely. It's always wonderful. And some kind of way, I feel like highly sensitive people, we miss the memo. Everybody else got the memo that we're supposed to give second chances. We have manipulated that into eternal chances, <laughs> infinity chances. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's, we wonder why that blows up in our face. We're not yeah. supposed to give infinity chances to other human beings. That's, yeah. That's not healthy. That's the unhealthy part <laughs> of being that highly sensitive person. Yes. Yes. So we have to accept to be able to have healthy boundaries that give us the container to help us rebuild ourselves with self-love, find who we are after that disorienting person experience to find the person and orient to ourselves, become who we were always meant to be. Come back to the permission to live as us instead of how do I not be the scapegoat of this person or this family system? How do I get approval from people who are really not seeking betterment? Why do I even want that approval? So we have to really be able to look at our family systems and still maybe love them. Yeah. Because we can love people who are inadequate. We can even love people who are toxic. But that is different than giving people the chance to hurt us over and over and over again. We have to give ourselves some permission. You can love with a nice screen up, knowing they are who they are. They're going to constantly disappoint. Yeah. So you get to choose, you know, do you just put the wall up completely and block them out? Do you love them with the screen? And the worst part is, do you continue the vicious cycle and love them with your arms open, expecting something different every time? Yes. Yes. And we each are tasked. There's no one formula I can give. You know, I think that's another thing we sort of 
secretly want as human beings. We want someone to go, here's the formula, just plug it into the formula and figure it out. And it's never going to be that way. We have to really look at our own individual self. And then we have to evaluate the systems that we're in really for how healthy we can possibly be with ourselves while surrounded by those systems. And we have to figure out the distance that we need to actually heal, grow, have the space to invest in our own lives. At a point, I decided to go no contact with my family. Mm -hmm. That's not right for everybody. And be wary of any spiritual teacher. I know there's a new Netflix show um, documentary on Teal Swan. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I would caution people about following her work though listening to her, I can't find a problem with much of what she says, but she's big on disconnect from your family. Mm-hmm. I, I am not big on that because that mean, really needs to be a last resort. This is very toxic in the same way that if I really think a, a set of chemicals is truly toxic to me, well, I have to admit to myself that I'm not going to walk over and stick my finger in it. Right. So if, if we get to the place of really from a healthy place, not a reactive post-traumatic stress. My nervous system is saying, get the hell out of here, flight response. But when you're grounded, when you're grounded, when you're in your reasonable self, right? when people in your world go, yeah, this is really toxic. You've really tried. This is enough. Mm-hmm. And you're supported in that within yourself and within healthy people who understand those dynamics. Because the hardest thing for another human being to understand is someone not speaking to their mother. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of guilt around that. But I think, like you said, there's, there's steps, you know, I've, I've not talked to them and then talked to them and not talked to them. And then talk like, I, because I feel guilty. I feel like I miss them, but I am missing a mother who I almost have constructed in my head. But like you said, when you really reach the point of emotional maturity, you can love that mother or father knowing who they are with their limited emotional skills. And maybe mm-hmm. it's at a distance. Maybe it's once a month. Maybe it's not, you know, with a big setting or with your partner there. Like there's so many different, like you said, I, I really truly agree with you. When And anything, if it's extreme, it's not healthy, right? So the solution yep. for all this is not just go no contact. It has well, to be and your own no unique... Contact. Yeah, it, it does. And, and you, we have to test it out. Healthy boundaries have some flex, at least for a while. Yeah. So I, I, after having no contact with my siblings for eight years, I went back in mm-hmm. and we, we tried for about three years mm-hmm. and the level of manipulation in my family system is just that there is no relating without manipulation. Mm-hmm. It's not available. And I had to test that out even eight years later. Mm-hmm with my siblings, because I had hope for my relationships with my siblings in a way that I did not have hope with my parental units. Yeah. And I had to try that out again. And it was, I'm glad that I tried it out, but at at the three-year mark, the manipulation was too high. And for me, their understanding of it and ability to own it themselves was not there. And and a very hard truth about this when we have siblings is that the siblings are are only co-rememberers on the earth. Hmm. They went through our familial experience. We all have different insights. We all take away different experiences and different impacts based on our temperaments, Mm -hmm. based on our own emotional maturity, based on how much we are seekers. Yeah. 
But it's, it's right in a lot of ways to have more hope for the sibling generation than a parental generation at a point because yeah. they're older, they're more fixated. So we bring more hope to that. And we may have to test out with different people, aunts, uncles, you know, different people in the family system, what's really available there? How much can they meet us halfway? Can mm-hmm. I do this in a limited sense? Maybe I can't go spend a week with family. Can I spend three days? Is that too much? What is the toll on my body? Yeah. The truth is I had to get real with myself about healing my nervous system. And my nervous system could not heal. Mine couldn't. Maybe yours can, but mine couldn't still feeling that manipulation. It couldn't settle. It couldn't find calm because rightly so my system would go, Hey, Nikki, warning, warning, warning. And if I wanted to be able to have a life where my system wasn't feeling activated constantly, it came down to, it wasn't worth it to me Mm -hmm. to continue those relationships. I didn't get enough positive out of it. I agree. Continue it. And that's a, nobody wants to have to evaluate people in such a way, especially Mm -hmm. as highly sensitive people. We want to be all heart all the time. And the reality is empathy without boundaries and limits will kill us. Mm -hmm. And disappoint us every single time. Every single time. And Mm -hmm. it'll either kill us in the sense of, I wonder how many people who are highly sensitive have completed suicide Mm -hmm. because they would not give themselves permission to bound off what was toxic to their system because it's never what I wanted to do. I never wanted, none of us ever want to have to be done with a human being in this sense that we related to, that we came into the world expecting to have always. Yeah. We have to get really real with ourselves. We have to start really owning and having responsibility for the energy that's happening to this body and this system that's ours to protect and take care of. And at a point I had to really look at the mirror and go, I have never had peace. When I was born, I nearly died. I was Catholic. They gave me last rites. So from the minute I got here, my poor little nervous system has had a hell of a time. (laughs) I had to get real about, all right, then if I want to teach this nervous system and this body calm, I have to disallow chaos. And as much as I will love my siblings till the end of time, I have to respect my own physical and emotional needs. And they, they, there just is not room, both of those things for me. Mm-hmm. It's a big part is, of why I wanted to do. Yeah. It is unique because it could be chaos, like you say. And that's obvious. Like our brain understands chaos, yelling, very outright abuse, manipulation, where they're constantly putting you down. And the other one that I really struggled with in my personal experience is that covert where it's like, oh, yes. oh, let me test this out. You know, like I would pour so much into the, the relationship, yes. go over there, drive an hour, put myself out of my the way. And then then the testing of, oh, well, is that going to come back? You know, is that energy going to bounce back? And am I going to be able to receive that? And it'd be like one percent, right? Like two yeah. visits out of 100, yeah. you know, and that's where I really had to evaluate, which was difficult because you, your human brain doesn't think that that's really abuse. Like that just seems like you're being very extreme and harsh towards that person. But I wanted to bring that up because I think that happens a lot more than often, you know, than not. I think it happens. A lot. And it's another assumption we make, you know, that Trump like narcissism is so obvious. I mean, you can see that 
you can sense that coming from a hundred miles away. It's not subtle. Yeah. It's a real specific archetype. But it still has fooled like more than half the population. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and and I don't know that it's fooled as much as a lot of people think it's right to be that narcissistic. A lot of people think, oh, that's smart it's to be scary. that confident and cocky. Look how mm. far it's gotten him. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is a real belief that's happening right now. But that's sort of all of our ideas and our subconscious about what narcissism is. The newer term for it that I think really hits is fragile narcissism. Hmm. That covert and a lot of women fit that different than that obnoxious businessman sort of way. A lot of women, they martyr themselves. Hmm. If you have a martyr in your life, it's likely they're a covert narcissist or they have strong traits of that. Hmm. Because that's the woe is me, poor me. If you go to visit a narcissistic mother, I don't care if you sleep in her bed and stay there the entire time. The moment you're ready to go, you will get some message of, I can't believe you're leaving so soon. It will never be enough ever, ever, ever. And that's a real problem. It really impacts reciprocity. That's my word for what you were describing. Mm -hmm. That no, we don't want to go through life keeping score and making our relationships 50-50. I showed up 75 minutes and you only showed up 49. You owe me. Like That's not the, the energy that we're talking about. But there is this sort of baseline reciprocity that we, if we don't get that in our relationships, it's like taking out of a bank account and never putting any money in. Well, right. that's going to be a problem at a point. You got to replenish it. And so a lot of narcissists, that that dynamic is they don't replenish anything. It's just expectation that you're supposed to meet. And as sensitive people, we will happily and generously meet that until we get bitter, Mm -hmm. resentful, Mm -hmm. and until we blow up. And the truth is that when we blow up and go, we're the crazy ones. Yes, because we let it build. It's Mm -hmm. something that's highly sensitive people that I very much encourage you to work on anybody who's listening to this and resonating with what we're talking about, because at a point you're allowing that person to use you. And then you're upset at them instead of upset at yourself of going, well, why did I go there a hundred times when they only came here once I'm in charge of me? Why did I do that to me? And why did I show that narcissist that this is totally okay. I'm willing to show up this many times and you can only show up once and that's how we participate in actually growing the narcissist in our lives stronger. Yeah. In their yeah. superpowers, we make their heads fatter. Yeah. And then when we draw that boundary and we've had enough and we're done being inauthentic or we're done, you know, investing in a relationship that's not reciprocating, they're like, what? What are you talking about? Uh, they are literally dumbstruck because, like you said, we've trained them that this is the way the relationship should go. Yes. It's like a subconscious contract that we didn't realize we were signing. It, it really is like we, we sat down at a table and they said, all right, I'm going to give you almost nothing and you're going to give me a whole lot of yourself. You're on board with that, right? And it's like, it's like we sign the contract and then we fulfill it. And at the moment we lose it and go, I can't do this anymore. I've done so much for you. I have said very often that the dynamic of narcissism is almost like a one day at a time disorder. Whereas in psychology, mostly what we're teaching people is let's do one day at a time. Let's stop stressing about the past and trying to prefigure out the future. That's where so much of our anxiety lives. And that is true. 
except for a narcissist. They have this amazing ability to, they wake up the next day, they don't feel bad. They're not rehashing what happened yesterday. Unless they're mad at you, they're not going to rehash it. So in that moment where you go, enough, I can't give you any more, they go, what are you talking about? You've only been here for 15 minutes today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So or they that, don't see their grievances. You bring it up and they're like, well, what do you want me to say? Uh, so I'm sorry. And then they'll be like, I'm sorry. It's like, that's not a genuine apology. You're literally puppeting what I just asked you to say. <laughs> like, yes. I shouldn't be telling an adult empty. what to do. Right. Yeah. It's, and it's an empty apology. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, it happens so much more often. Did you have another point on that? I just wanted to pivot to one other. Oh, go ahead. Uh, pivot, pivot. One other point about how, you know, this narcissist wreaks havoc in our relationship. I remember having so many friends which was the opposite of what you said. I think there's two, right? Two types of people. Some of them who are very wise and can see that the narcissist is abusing you and they try and help you. And for me, I had a couple of friends like that. They got really close, tried to help me, tried to mentor me, tried to get me away from him. And then I would come back to him and explain, you know, you should be treating me like this. And my friend said that this is wrong. And then I got the whole mind 360, like you said, the equation of one plus one is five, like, and I would believe it. I would drink the Kool-Aid and then I would go back to that friend and tell her the whole argument that I now believe that he, you know, put in my head. Um, I was loyal to him and, and they would be like, well, you're crazy. I can't, I give up on you. Right. And then I would lose that friendship yep. and they would, would not really have any more sympathy for me. I don't know if that's also a tiny bit of like that was their ego trying to fix me and that's why they give up but you lose relationships like that you lose healthy people like for sure i i wind up saying to a lot of people who have those healthy people in their lives that are trying other people will have healthy boundaries and they will not be on board with being along for the ride of watching you getting abused they will yeah. not do that to themselves and that, that's the reality there. And so those of us who have those types in their lives, it may feel like a, almost like a cruel being backed into a corner. Like I have to pick, am I going to lose the narcissist in my life or these friendships? And that's a hard spot. It might feel like a Sophie's choice. It might feel like a impossible choice, but if we're healthy, that is a very easy, simple choice. And we need to act as if and that, that sounds kooky to us. We don't understand that as a society. I would choose what my friends want, what they want for me, as opposed to my husband or my boyfriend or my partner. Aren't I supposed to be aligned and loyal to them? Not when someone is abusing you. Healthy relationships don't feel crazy. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And they don't make you pick between your friend or them. And They don't. And they will listen to something that yeah. you need versus gaslight you out of what you need. Yes. Yes. In healthy relationships, it's not that we don't have hard moments. I'm, I am so happy to be in a healthy marriage now. I, I like to say my final husband. I've had three. <laughs> Chris is my last husband. Third <laughs> time's a charm. Yeah, that's right. But in a healthy relationship, like we still have hard moments, but we're working together on what's hard. There is a camaraderie. There is a we are on the same team. Okay. Doesn't mean we don't get mad at each other. 
doesn't mean we don't have moments where one or both of us might mouth off and have to walk out of the room, but we are both vested in repairing our connection if we have a tough moment. In a narcissistic relationship, there's almost a genie in the bottle quality of, oh, are you done being upset now? Now we go forward with absolutely no resolution mm-hmm. so that I can just do the same abusive crap another day. That's what right. we're both signing up for. Again, the subconscious contracts we keep signing every day. So in, so that's something that I really want listeners to know that if you feel this crazy inside of a relationship, you can make it as complicated as you want, which really is just a stall tactic because it's very simple. Healthy relationships don't feel, don't, are not that difficult. They do not feel like you're beating your head against a wall. Mm-hmm. They just don't. Yeah. What do you think about that? I, I 100% agree. I, I have the light and day comparison. I have, yeah. you know, my ex and then my current. And yeah, it's tr- especially meeting mine directly after. So he was going through the whole PTSD and all of my like mm-hmm. awakening to my parents, you know, contributing, you know, like I really came out of mine like what just happened (laughs) like I thought I had this euphoric perfect childhood and I didn't understand how I got so manipulated and like how it felt normal to be in that so yeah and so it was difficult because a lot of things triggered me and I would project things onto him and he would always you know very honestly remind me that that's not him (laughs) I did not do that I do not do that And so it's really hard, but the key that I really think for me to be able to, to negotiate, like, is he healthy? Is he like my ex? Was he always was open to listening? Yes. He was always open to apologizing for his part and waiting for my, I mean, I'm an empath, so I always apologize for everything afterwards. I feel so guilty, but yeah. So there's that do, like you said, that reciprocity that like, we are together working on this. We want this to work on the same team. We're willing to go to whomever to, to help us. We're willing to read whatever book, you know, versus this constant, like, no, I don't need therapy. No, I'm not, you know, insane. We're healthy. We're fine. We don't need this book, all the things. Yeah. I'm, I'm big on compatibility too. And I, I, I have had moments of being really angry when I went through my master's program in counseling, I was really pissed off because everything I learned, I thought, why did I have to get all the way to a master's degree to learn this stuff? Like, this is the stuff we should be teaching at second grade and fifth grade and 12th grade. I was irate about it. Cause I thought, <laughs> my God, this is what everyone needs and only counselors and getting higher education, get it. Um, So (laughs) there's so much that we don't get taught about compatibility. We all stumble into dating, letting our feelings lead us. If we're emotionally neglected and we don't even know it, like we're going to stumble around. And I want to make a point based on what you said, you thought you had the perfect childhood. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can hear my history. Okay. My mom was physical. She punched holes in walls. She wouldn't punch me, but she'd like poke me in the chest. She'd terrify me. She'd say things like, I brought you into this world. I'll take you out. Like it was just harsh and cold. Mm. So if I stumbled into any therapist's office, it, it was obvious what I needed to work on. If you get hit with bricks, you know, damn good and well, Hey, I have some effects from that. I need to work on that as, as a sensitive person. Yeah. 
I have so much empathy for the people that experience emotional neglect and emotional immaturity from their parents, because what a crazy thing to have to put your finger on what was missing. Mm -hmm. That no one noticed you when you were struggling or overwhelmed and just came up and said, Hey, sweet girl, you've been working on this project so hard. It's been three hours. I could see you're frustrated. Sometimes we have to take breaks. I think you should go outside and play for a little while. We can come back to this tomorrow. We don't learn how to emotionally take care of ourselves if we aren't raised in that. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, in a, in a crazy paradox, I am grateful for having some of those glaring abuses in my past because it, it sort of directed me. Now I came into the other sort of more nuanced ways that I was neglected or abused and what I needed to fill in the gaps of, of what my system needed. But there's so much struggle for people who will hear my, strug my struggle, my story and go, well, that stuff didn't happen to me. What's wrong with me that I feel the way that mm -hmm. I do? And sometimes that's even harder to figure out. It is really hard. It's been like more than a decade. And I feel like I finally had some aha moments lately. Like you said, because you have your you're PhD in this, but it's like, oh yeah, yeah. Emotionally immature, neglectful parents. Like that mixed in with like this very strict uh, religious ideology. Oh, finally, yeah, do it. finally, I'm like, I get it now, but it's taken me so long because I've just had to paw through the fog and the gaslighting and trying and trying and the cycles and every Christmas always seems to be like a new layer removed. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But yes, I feel anyone's pain who is confused, who yeah. thinks what, like, I didn't have a tragic childhood. So what's wrong? What's wrong with me? There's, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, like Nikki said, it's just the lack of emotional intelligence in the world. There needs to be more of it at a much younger yes. age. And I'll go so far as to say strict religion mm -hmm. is the culprit for a lot of what we struggle with as a highly sensitive tribe. Because for the simple fact that strict religion teaches that somebody is always watching and you're always about to do something wrong. <laughs> and that always... is basically teaching you to be hypervigilant and to never be relaxed, never be in the flow ever, ever, ever. And it's true. We wonder why post-traumatic stress from learning religion. That's why. <laughs> and you're always going to hell. <laughs> See that? Right. Right. With which at this age, like I'm in my forties, like at this age, I can be like, oh yeah, right. I'm going to hell. If somebody says that to me, when you are freaking four and six and eight and 10 and 12, and you think what you're doing is going to send you to burn in hell. That's not a throwaway comment. That's not a normalized religious thing that we're normalized to as adults. Oh yeah. Some people believe that. Okay. That is terrifying. That is so much scarier than monsters that might be under the bed. Yeah. That's God. That's supposed to love me and take care of me. Also might murder me with fire. Yeah. This very unhealthy view of God and even a parent, right? Like that kind of describes like that abusive parent and you're looking yes. to God as the ultimate parent. Like, Oh, yeah. So yeah. I, I teach a lot of you are your own authority figure. Mm -hmm. And that I think if there was one way for me to summarize what needs to happen to heal the aftermath of narcissistic relationships from childhood and or adulthood is it's coming back to your own authority. Yes. And I have to believe in my spiritual work that I do myself and with people 
I have to believe that no God, there's no God out there that I can conjure or imagine that would struggle with me taking my own human authority. He's not threatened by that. She's not threatened by that. The energy of whatever that higher being is cannot possibly be threatened by that. And if they are threatened by that, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I don't need a God in my life that is threatened by my human power. Excuse me? What? That's a, that's a human no level God. That makes no sense, right? It, that's, a, that's a construct created uh, by human beings of yeah. that shame, authority, and control. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is unnecessary. It is not a part of what we need to practice. Now, if religion works for you and you're out there and you have peace with it, go forth with it. But if you struggle with it, know that spirituality has nothing to do with that human made idea of God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This has been so incredible. I feel like I could talk to you for another like multiple hours, Nikki. <laughs> we could, we could go on and on. I know, but our time is up. So you have to go over to Nikki's podcast um, and listen to her podcast. So where, where do you love to interact with people? I know you have a Patreon. I do have a Patreon. I do. I have exclusive episodes that you can't find anywhere else. Um, I do a monthly live stream there too, where people can, for throwing me 10 bucks a month, they can ask a question. We have a topic. Uh, if you sign on to Patreon, you can get, I mean, hours and hours and hours and hours of contact of content that's there. And that's really why I do the show. It's why I do Patreon really it's the encouragement of my clients over the years. I had a very traditional counseling practice and over the years, my clients would tell me, Nikki, you should have a show. Nikki, people people should be able to hear what we talked about in session today. And I was like, okay. So my clients have been my greatest teachers in some ways and my, my greatest encouragers. And in this work, in my own story, it's true. And I just believe it. We can't hear this stuff one time and get it we're working at the level of our subconscious mind. So with my podcast, with the stuff on Patreon, I don't even want my people listening to it and taking notes. I mean, you can, and if you wanna do it that way, do it that way. But really, if you need to fall asleep to just listening to it, we just have to marinate in these concepts and really sort of stew in them until our subconscious goes, oh wait, is this the new program? Are we letting go of that old program? Is this the new stuff you want me to operate on? How much time that takes. I've had to unravel messages that I heard umpteen billion times growing up. How many times did I need my therapist or to listen to a podcast with that theme? A few hundred probably is the truth, if not a few Mm. thousand times. And then we have to reinforce it as we go because that if that trauma was our original language, It's like, we would never expect someone whose original language was Spanish or Italian to not think in that language. Right. No matter how many new languages they think in and operate in today. And we have to understand that so we don't feel crazy when that old language wants to creep out of us. We have to continue to practice that new language because our default may be that old language. And I don't don't want that to be my automatic default. So I, I will work all the days of my life to hold on to this new healing language. Because I understand how a subconscious works versus a conscious. So all of my work is out there for you to really marinate in. Um, How I spoke today is really how I teach. 
It's how I try to be really authentic and really open because I, I think that's how humans really learn. I think it's how we've been learning since the beginning of time by seeing others, by hearing the stories of others. So I, I try to be generous with that because it's what was missing for me along my journey. And it would have made my journey easier. So if you resonate with me, you can find me at emotionalbadass.com. You can find me at nikkieisenhower.com, but my last name is a doozy to spell. So that might be harder to find. <laughs> and you can just kind of hang out and see what resonates. Uh, if you want to work on boundaries and you're interested in how I talk about things, come, come hang out. If you join the Patreon, I've got a big coupon code for you. So yeah, I just try to, to show myself and share and answer questions. And that's how we learn and grow. And that's what we're all here for. And I learn as much from the people that interact with me as you can learn from me. Yes. So absolutely find her. I 110% agree with Nikki about, uh, I love that analogy with the language. That's key. You know, I always think about like one negative comment, you need to erase it with is it 10 or 100? It's a lot, right? So if you it's constantly had the negative literally being your language, you have to immerse yourself in the new language. I love that analogy. Mm-hmm. And Thank not you. with stressing on it and chewing it with your mind, just like with ease, because you deserve ease. If everything has been hard, if there's been too much hard, don't make your healing hard too. Yeah. Bring an easy vibe to it. You owe that to yourself and you get to be in charge of bringing that kind of vibe. So no stressing. I advocate easy vibes as you just listen and marinate in it because you deserve that too. That's part that, of the healing. That is why I love podcasts because the, the audiobooks and the podcast is what really helped me because I could walk and especially when I had babies. So I'd be like, oh, let's go to take a nap yeah. in the stroller and I just walk and listen for hours. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you everybody for listening. If you enjoy this, please uh, take a screenshot of this podcast and post it on your social media stories and tag at Raven Scott Show, as well as what, what is your Instagram handle? Uh, Nikki Eisenhower or okay. Emotional Badass. I have two. Good. All right. How about Emotional Badass is easier to, to spell out. So tag both of us. We'd love to connect with you. And remember, always keep your unique light shining. Losing time, I'm fading fast I just wanna make it last Try to let go of the past I close my eyes, embrace the blast Sleepless nights and headaches stack Restlessness to hell and back What's my purpose, what do I grab? A slippery surface, a heart attack And sometimes you just gotta believe There's something that'll give you relief There's something that'll have what you need what you mean we're broken it's tragic we're not all elastic but maybe